Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. We're going to continue our series here in 1 Peter, uh, Peter's first letter to the churches in what's known today as modern-day Turkey. Uh, He's writing to new believers, likely Gentile believers, uh, who are um, new to uh, this this faith, this way of following Jesus Christ. And what we're going to look at here in chapter 2 is a few different things. The first is, what does it mean to be a healthy Christian or a healthy believer? What what nutrition, if I can put it that way, is is necessary for us to grow in uh, God's Word and to grow spiritually? And then secondly, how can we be people that attract others to the gospel? We have to think back and think, what was it that attracted us to the gospel of Christ to begin with? And now, what can we as believers exemplify to attract other people to follow Jesus? So in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2, we're going to first begin by talking about how we grow spiritually, and that begins with consuming God's Word. We have to be disciplined and regular in how we uh, accomplish this task. We have to put together a plan in order to achieve this. So, you know, Peter's continuing uh, his, uh, his letter here to the churches in Asia Minor, and he understands that he must communicate to them that in order for them to continue to grow in their faith, they must be people of God's Word. And that God's word by nature is eternal. We covered that uh, in our last our last episode. So this means that in order to accomplish this, they they have to cease from doing some things that before they were accustomed to doing. The first is this word malice, and malice is simply um, an ill will towards others. And especially this behavior needs to uh, stop um, towards other believers. Another attribute is deceit, or uh, the scripture uses the word guile, which means uh, treachery or deliberate dishonesty and trying to trap somebody else. Hypocrisy is another thing that they're called to avoid, and that you know is, is a familiar term in uh, Christian context, and that's pretending, uh, pretending a devotion or pretending to love. Um, and this is a, a relation um, to, to love other believers, um, but actually not f- uh, following through in that. Uh, a fourth thing is envy. Uh, and it's plural in the original language and really could refer to jealousies that lead to bitterness and they lead to rivalry. And finally, he encourages them to no longer be people of slander or evil speaking. And this is speech that puts other people down or is backbiting. And although Peter's list of sinful attitudes and actions is clearly not exhaustive, uh, these are essential things that um, believers must put aside in order to not only grow spiritually for themselves, but allow the Christian community that they're a part of to grow in strength. So when we put these things aside, we have to fill this void with something else. And Peter calls us to uh, long for the milk of God's word, just like a newborn baby would um, look for a bottle when it's time to feed. And the key word here is desire. We must have this desire, a term that speaks of deep longing, because these believers had experienced the goodness of God. They had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So Peter calls them to cultivate a desire or a hunger for God's word. And here's the thing is that partaking of God's word is not optional for the Christ follower. It's no more optional than a baby being fed in order to survive. This is the heart that Peter is trying to foster in new believers. And obviously this is one that would lead to spiritual growth. So a true desire is something we need to cultivate for God's word. And this can only take place when we first get rid of the sinful attitudes and actions that we have been feasting on before. So in verse 3, Peter is quoting the Psalm 34 verse 8 as he often does from the Old Testament. This would have been the hymn book of Peter's life. Think about how you and I might quote texts from Amazing Grace or Blessed Assurance or Holy, Holy, Holy. For Peter, the Psalms is the, is the hymn book that he would have grown up with in his Jewish context. So he's quoting these phrases like taste and see. 
that the Lord is good. So he continues at the milk analogy that he started in the previous verse, and Peter's command rests on the assurance that his audience did in fact experience or taste the goodness and graciousness of God. Anything else would not satisfy, and as they discovered, they will find spiritual nourishment that is in Christ and in Christ alone. So the second thing we find that as we uh, follow God, that we are his holy people, and what holy people do is they worship and they serve God alone. So in verse 4, Peter is starting to change the imagery from milk, and now he's moving to this imagery of God's temple, or what we understand as the church, these living stones. And during a building project, builders would choose a special cornerstone. This would be what would guide the build so that it would be straight and it wouldn't be crooked. And the foundation here, as Peter is portraying for us, is Christ. And it's Christ who is the stone. And he also references a psalm about how the builders rejected this stone. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah who has come to save them. So initially he was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is considered precious, of great value and great worth. And according to verse 5, while Jesus is the cornerstone, believers are living stones. We are the spiritual house of God that he, by his own hand, has placed together. No one is part of the local church community by accident. We have been woven together by God's divine providence. So these believers now serve by offering spiritual sacrifices. And Peter is communicating that through Christ, every believer is a priest and has direct access to the Father. We are no longer limited by another man in order to access God. We have access to come boldly before the throne of grace through the person of Jesus Christ. And because all believers are priests, we don't need a mediator. We can offer spiritual sacrifices. And in fact, Romans 12 verse 1 reminds us that we ourselves are the sacrifice that God is looking for, a perfect sacrifice. So in verse 6 through 8, the apostle quotes three separate Old Testament passages. He's supporting what he is teaching to these new believers in what is modern-day Turkey. He says he's teaching them first that Christ is a living stone. And the first reference is Isaiah 28, 16, where the Messiah is presented as the cornerstone. And this stone on which a building relies for stability and correct alignment. So to borrow from this analogy, believers trust in Christ and rely on him, much like a building relies on the cornerstone, or in our day and age, how the building relies on the foundation. And according to the end of verse 6, the one who trusts in Christ will not be put to shame, humiliated, confounded, or disappointed, because these believers are experiencing persecution. They are experiencing the disdain and the distrust of others. And Peter is encouraging them, if you continue to follow Christ, you will not be disappointed. And in verse 7, Peter continues by stating that those who believe find honor in Christ. He is precious to them. And according to scholars, this is likely the honor of sharing in Christ's exaltation. Those who do not believe, however, reject him. And as is communicated in Psalm 118, verse 22, they will stumble over him and they will suffer eternal consequences as a result. And this was what was prophesied earlier in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. So then we get to verse 9, and it begins with a conjunction, the word but. And in contrast to the description and peril of unbelievers, now Peter resumes the description of believers that he started in verse 5. And Peter relies heavily on the teachings of the Old Testament and applies the language used to describe Old Testament Israel. And now he puts that in connection with the New Testament people of God. So two specific pa passages come into play here. The first is Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6 and Isaiah 43, verse 20 and 21. So four phrases characterize believers. The first, believers are a chosen people or a chosen generation. 
But what is Peter trying to communicate here? He is telling us that believers are God's chosen people. And by being God's chosen people, we are granted this privilege by his initiative, not our own. And the second phrase is that Christian community is a royal priesthood. This is interesting that these two words would be connected. Priesthood wasn't necessarily part of royalty, and royalty wasn't necessarily a designation of priesthood. But we see something fascinating here. Peter saw every believer as priest, which we already read earlier in verse 5, but he also saw them as reigning with Christ or as a part of his royal family. You go back to the King, King David, who was someone who was royalty, but at certain times was allowed to offer sacrifice. Now we see this Davidic line that is, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and now we as the children of God are considered this royal priesthood, ruling and reigning with Christ. So thirdly, Peter describes the Christian community as a holy nation. And he emphasized that believers' distinct privilege as a people that belong to God. A description that's further clarified by the fourth phrase, his own special people, or those who belong to God. So we see God's chosen people, we see that we are a royal priesthood, we see that we are a holy nation, and we see that we are his own special people. Now we shouldn't view these traits as a reason to gloat, or a reason to be prideful, or a reason to boast. Instead, we should view these in light of the ultimate purpose of God's deliverance of his people. And what is God's purpose in delivering his people? To proclaim the praises of the one who called them out. We have a responsibility to communicate the gospel that has freed us in Christ. So in verse 10, Peter reminds his readers that they were God's people now. God was not ashamed to claim them as his own, and he was not ashamed to be their God. Just like he wasn't ashamed to be Israel's God when he said, You will be my people and I will be your God. Now he offers to the New Testament a covenant relationship that we can follow Christ and be his people and he will be our God. And this points back to Hosea verse 2 and 23, that our standing or identity was given to us by grace. Only they were not a people, but now they were, which speaking of Israel, Once they had not received mercy, but now they had, and although humanity is desperately sinful and rebellious against God's holy standard, God has chosen to reconcile us to himself through the precious blood of his Son, Jesus Christ. And because of trusting in his sacrificial death in our place, we are now God's people. And grace alone has made it so, and now we are part of God's family, and we experience these blessings of his grace. And now we must reorient our way of thinking and conduct our lives for his glory. So how do we live in such a way that we will attract people to the message that we once received? In verse 11, Peter returns to the theme of believers living in exile from chapter 1, the term beloved or dear friends. And now there's there's a shift of thought that's happening here. Because believers are strangers, we're sojourners, we are aliens, we are immigrants. They are to live in such a way as to reflect the fact that we are not at home in this world. Peter communicates this with a negative and then a positive admonition. So in the negative sense, the apostle challenges these believers to abstain from the passions of the flesh, as we read some of those earlier. And what are some of those passions that wage war against our soul? Sinful desires. He he calls them to abstain from sexual immorality. In verse 12, he presents the positive side, as Peter instructs these young Christians to keep their conduct honorable among the Gentiles or the pagans. The apostle understood that reputation was an important component of a believer's testimony. We need to have credibility. Peter believed that when they displayed holy behavior, the lost world would take notice. And they wouldn't take notice to give glory to you or I. They'll take notice to give glory to God. 
especially on the day of visitation. The meaning of the day of visitation is often debated among scholars, but Peter may have been referring to the day of the conversion of these unbelievers. They may come to Christ because of a Christian's holy conduct, but second, he may have been referring to the judgment day, when everyone will recognize the fact that he or she has to give an account for their lives before God, and the unbeliever will be left wanting without the record of Jesus Christ on their account. So after Peter's admonition to live as strangers, he then provides them a practical way to do this. And submission to governing authorities who were mostly hostile towards believers in that day. And by definition, submission means to line oneself up under or according to a given relationship. And this submission, according to the apostle, was to be done for the Lord's sake. Those specifically referred to here include the emperor in verse 13, the governors and the local authorities who ruled on behalf of the Roman government in verse 14. And when believers respond in this way to authority, it is a way that they can silence those who would accuse them of wrongdoing. And this was not merely a suggestion on the part of Peter. He wanted these Christ followers to understand that it was God's will for them to conduct themselves in this way. Regardless of how they were being treated by authorities, just like first century believers, we are God's servants. And we should demonstrate this behavior before the world as well. And now verse 17 closes for us and provides us a fourfold summary of what it means to be a Christian citizen. First, believers are to respect or honor everyone, knowing that each individual has been uniquely created by God and in his image. And second, we are to love one another. As believers and members of God's family, love should be an identifiable trait. It should be what we are known for, that we love one another within the local church community and the church at large. And thirdly, we are to fear or reverence the Lord in such a way that it impacts our obedience. And fourthly, we are to honor the governing authorities whom God has placed in their positions. And you can reference Romans chapter 13 as additional material on that subject. Well, we often view the word submission in a negative light. Submission is a biblical principle that we find almost everywhere in the New Testament. First to God in James chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, to governing authorities in Romans 13, verse 1 and 7, to church leadership in Hebrews 13, 17, within marriage in Colossians 3, verse 18, and even a general submissiveness of all Christians to one another, we find in Ephesians 5 and verse 21. So at its core, the term for submission was a military term that means to arrange or line up in order under the command of a leader. And the idea behind the word, however, was not just this rote obedience, but instead was to be an attitude of the heart, which ultimately reveals itself in action. So in chapter 3, Peter would use this same term to speak of the angels and powers being subject or in submission to Christ. And it is this heart attitude that the Christ follower is to have toward the governing authorities. So let us be people who take seriously our responsibility to nourish ourselves through the word of God and put aside our old ways of doing things. Put on the new man in Christ Jesus and let us live honorably, glorifying God and making the gospel attractive to those who would follow Christ. I hope this lesson has been helpful and I look forward to studying with you next time here on the Calvary Couples Podcast.